Last week, we talked about what disciples feel, what they, what they feel, and, and we talked about how they feel things because they understand things properly. They understand how awesome and great God is, and they understand who they are in, in connection to that. And because of that, they're overwhelmed to the point that the Bible calls them, and Jesus says, they're poor in spirit. They're poor in spirit. They realize that there is nothing they can do, nothing they can do on their own that could ever get them even remotely close to God. They're poor in spirit. And we also talked about how they, they feel this, this sense of mourning, this sense of sadness, because they understand what, what sin is doing to this world. And yeah, it's easy for us today to see things that, that we know are sinful and we see the sinful effects. And oftentimes our first reaction is anger. We get so upset, so angry. You know, I can't believe the president did this or Congress did this or the senator did this or we can't believe this business did this. We're so upset, we get so angry. But I was reading through this and I I think I read it right, and I went back and made sure the Greek wasn't hiding it, but never in here does it say, blessed are those who are angry. It says, blessed are those who mourn. You see, when we see the effects of sin, and we see the effects of sin being done by people who are sinners, it doesn't just make us angry, it makes us sad makes us grieve, makes us mourn. We feel that. Talked about that last week. And then we talked about how we have this understanding of what God is trying to do in this world. And that what he's trying to do is fix the major problem with this world. And the way that that's going to happen is by his people living out the way that he wants us to live. And part of that is this feeling of being meek. And again, meekness is, is not, like we talked about last week, weakness. But it is this controlled power that we have. We know in Christ, we have the power of the Lord, but we don't just use it as a weapon. It is with meekness that we go forth. And so we talked about how that's what a disciple feels. A disciple feels these things. And a disciple feels these things because a disciple knows these things. And you might go, well, I don't feel these things. Well, do you know them? And if you don't know them in full right now, are you on the path of knowing them more? Do you really know, as we sang earlier, how great our God is? And do you really know how not great you are? And that the only way that we can even pretend to have a relationship with God, to even think that it's even possible, is if God does something to us. And that's the promise of the Beatitudes. That's the promise is that when we're poor in spirit, when we really get this, ah, now you have the kingdom of heaven. 
When you really understand the effects of sin and it makes you weep rather than, you know, want to shake your fist, then you will be comforted. And when you are meek, when you do things in the spirit with which God wants us to do things, then you will inherit the earth. Last week was, what do we feel? This week we're talking about motivation. Why we do what we do. Why we do what we do. And you know, I was thinking about the really clever, great way to illustrate this, but realized I don't really need to. Because all of you do different things for different reasons. You've all got something that motivates you, whatever it is. Now, sometimes motivation gets, gets pressed down, and we don't really know what motivates us until maybe someone comes along and challenges us on it. But we all do things. We don't just randomly do things. You know, we're not just, you know, just kind of like become so conditioned that we just do this, do that. We don't really think about it. Oh, we have moments. We have moments when, you know, you, I know sometimes I, when I drive from the house here, I always come here. And then sometimes there are times I'm not coming here but I forget that because, you know, it's been almost two miles. So I forget that on the way, and I end up coming over here, and then I realize, wait a minute. I wasn't going to the church today. I was going somewhere else. Lost my focus. Lost my motivation. We have moments like that, but for the most part, we do things for a reason. And we don't always, again, know the reason, always articulate the reason, but we do things for a reason. If we're going to be disciples, we need to really ask that question, what should motivate us? And Jesus provides the answer here in the Sermon on the Mount. Not why do we do what we do. For most of us, that's some kind of mixture of motivations. There could be many different reasons we do different things. But it's really the most important motive. The purest of motives. Why do we do it? Even good things. I think people do a lot of good things and they, they do them, but they also do them for the wrong reasons. They, they want to help, but they want to help because maybe it's by helping they get some form of control and some kind of power. They want to help because if I help you, then maybe someday you're going to help me. They want to do good because maybe they think others around them will think better of them. Just different motivations. Even Christians fall in this trap. We want to do good, but we don't necessarily want to do good for the right reasons. You know, we maybe want to do good because we think by doing good things we keep God happy. We think by doing good things, every time we do a good thing, that mansion we're going to have in heaven is going to be a little bit more spectacular. Because if you're going to spend eternity somewhere, it better be nice, right? So we're motivated by different things. We're motivated because even when we think that it's good, even when we 
when we, we think that we're, we, we, we're doing it for the right reasons, it gets mixed up. Jesus wants to make that right. In fact, it's one of the reasons he came to earth was to make this right, to help us get our motivation right. And so he's here, Sermon on the Mount, and he's teaching what does it mean to be in the kingdom? What does it mean to be a disciple? And we pick it up in verse 6. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pretty straightforward what the text says. I think we just need to unpack it a little to really not just run over these words. I think we do that a lot. I think we, in church, we hear words so many times, we see Bible verses so many times, we hear teachings, and we just kind of run over it. Even when we sing songs. Like, we just sang that song in Christ alone. You know, and I don't know about you, but I can't sing that song when you get to like that third verse when it talks about, you know, how darkness thought it had won and just bursting forth, Christ overcame death. But we get so used to these words, we, we don't even react anymore, we don't respond anymore. It's just like, oh yeah, it's really cool, thanks Jesus, thanks for, you know, overpowering sin and death. That's really nice of you. That's good. That's what my, I told you a couple weeks ago, my daughters always kind of accuse me of. They accuse me of not being a great gift receiver. Because, or even when they do something, they all know that, you know, if my daughter went to the Olympics and won a gold medal, I would say, that's really nice. It's good, right? And I think that's how we treat God sometimes. That's how we look at these words and we don't stop for a second and really understand in depth. It's almost like we're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid that if we let those words take a hold, it might make us do something. We might, in the middle of a song, shout out hallelujah. We might start crying. We might start weeping. We might just stand up to honor God. And we're afraid. And so we got to keep those words at a safe distance. Look at these words here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger, thirst. Understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's not, disciples are not people that go like, oh man, I really want to be right with God. I, I really want to be a better Christian. I really want to. It's a goal of mine. I, I want to. I'm going to work hard for it. I'm going to try my best. I'm going to do Everything that, that, that the pastor says I should do or that maybe I have a book on, on righteousness, I'm going to do everything I can. 
I'm going to get all the help. I'm going to connect with a, with a Bible study group. I'm going to even maybe get an accountability group one-on-one. No. Still not it. Look at the words he used. Hunger first. Hunger first. Most of us don't know these words because we don't really know what it means to be hungry. We don't really know what it means to be thirsty. Oh, we get hungry and thirsty to a certain level, but most of us have never experienced true hunger and true thirst. We haven't gotten down to the thing that we know is true. What we know is true is that we cannot live without water. I think they say we can go about three or four days. And we cannot live without food. And I think they say, you know, depending on you and your what starting weight you start at, you can maybe go longer than others. But, you know, generally, we're talking a few weeks. Most of us have never been that close. We haven't gone three days without water. Where we really understand, I really need water. Most of us haven't gone 60 to 90 days without food. Where we go, I really understand what it means not to have food. I get this hunger and thirst thing. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying righteousness is a goal, it's an objective, it's something that you really want, it's a high dream, it's a priority. No, he is saying it is, it is, it is as much a need. You want it so much, you need it so much that it is like food and water. That's a disciple. That's a disciple that says, I'm not going to settle. I'm not going to say, I got enough, good enough, okay, I'll get to it when I get to it. No. You hunger for it. And you hunger for it because you don't have it. And you desperately need it. Too many of us, and I'm not talking about the population in general, I'm talking about people in the church. I'm talking about myself. I'm talking about people who've walked in the faith for decades. I'm not talking about everybody else. I'm talking about us. We have developed a take-it-or-leave-it attitude towards righteousness. It's almost like it's an option. It's like, okay, I got this plan with God. And the plan was, I pray this prayer... And then he gives me all this stuff. He gives me eternal life, and he gives righteousness. But it's kind of on a, on a layaway plan. I'm not really going to have it until later. So from the time that I prayed that prayer and I became a Christian until the time when I die and I, and I finally get all this righteousness and stuff, oh, in between, I'll just, you know, I'll do the best I can. No. It's not what he's talking about. That's how so many of us are. We've made it like, yeah, great, got that, it's good. Someday, gonna have righteousness. It's no. You hunger 
and you thirst for it. It has become essential to your life. You cannot survive. It is not an option. And we wonder why our churches are so powerless. We wonder why Christians have lost their voice in a supposedly Christian society. It's because we've made righteousness as just an objective or a goal or a nice thing to have. And we no longer hunger or thirst for it. I can guarantee you, I can prove it to you. I can prove it to myself. Within an hour of me leaving this place, I don't care how much God convicts me of the scripture. I don't care how, what I feel in this moment, in this place. Within an hour, I'm going to be back in the world. I'm going to be thinking about those Dallas Cowboys and how they just blew it yesterday and why Dak Prescott is their quarterback. I'm going to be thinking about, you know, the job I have to do. I'm going to be thinking about, you know, what I'm having for lunch and why the, you know, it's not as good as I thought it would be. I'm not going to be hungering for righteousness at that moment. Why? Why have we so devalued righteousness? Is it because we don't understand what it is? Or is it because we've been sold a fake Christianity? An incomplete Christianity that says righteousness? Don't worry about it. You got it. God promised it to you. Don't worry about it. You know what I love about this, though? What's great about all of these things? If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, it says, they will be satisfied. It's not this, you know, like, you know, you always, I remember the first time I saw this picture, it was like a cartoon, and it was, Kind of funny, but I got it. It was like this donkey, and he had a stick on his head, and there was a string, and there was an apple. So the whole point, right? The donkey's following the apple, trying to get it, wants to eat it. That's not what God's doing. He's not saying, oh, here, here's righteousness. It's just out of your grasp, and it's going to keep you moving. No. He says, you're going to be satisfied. You're going to receive it. You see, we, we confuse this even more, not just because we, most of us have lived our entire lives in the first world where we really don't what it, know what it means to need something. But then we've confused things. We've confused by elevating wants to the level of need. And I said this a couple of weeks ago, and I think it bears repeating that when you elevate once to need, you will never be satisfied because your once will always change. 
That's the plague of our society. Our first world society is we don't have real needs, so we generate needs. We say these are the things I need when really they're just the things we want. We don't really need them. And we, we chase after it and then we get it. And what happens is when we get the thing that we want, we realize after a while that, you know, we want something else. Or what we thought that thing would provide for us, it's not providing for us. So we look somewhere else. We become addicted to happiness. Personal fulfillment. It's all that matters. Confuses it even more. So that in our society, not only do true needs compete with righteousness, not food and water, but also all these other things that we say we need, that we cannot live without. Disciples, you are motivated by a true need for righteousness. More than a deep desire. More than just the anticipation of, of, of the child at Christmas wanting what's in, the, in, that, in that box. More than that. We hunger and we thirst. Look at this second verse. People are like, good, let's go to the second verse because I really don't like that first one. That one, you know, kind of hits too close to home. Let's look at the second one. It's not much better. See, disciples are motivated by mercy. They're merciful. They're motivated by mercy more than they're motivated by justice. They're motivated by mercy They don't worry about justice. Justice is God's thing. What God has called us to do is to be merciful. Now we need to understand what what it means to be merciful. Merciful doesn't mean to be blissfully stupid. It doesn't mean to act like nothing ever goes wrong or nobody ever does anything wrong. It's not to say merciful is to erase sin and say there is no sin. That's... That's not merciful. In fact, you know, oftentimes that kind of attitude is the opposite of merciful. It's not merciful for God to say, like, you guys all made some mistakes, but here's what I'm going to do. One time offer only deal, going to wipe them all away, we're going to start all over. That's not mercy. In fact, that's kind of cruel in a way. We think of mercy that way. But here's mercy. Here's the picture of mercy that we find in Jesus Christ. You remember when Jesus was being criticized for hanging out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And in, and in that that society of the time, like in Jewish society of that time, that they were the lowest. Tax collectors, prostitutes, for different, different reasons. But they were considered the lowest of the low. And Jesus would hang out with them to the point that, that 
some of the other religious leaders thought they were, they were making fun of him because they would say, you know, he's a friend of sinners. And unfortunately, people get this half right. They think Jesus was showing mercy by hanging out with the sinners. No. Because Jesus does, didn't just hang out with the sinners. He met them in their sin. And in great mercy, he refused to leave them there. Do you get it? It's not merciful to say like, oh yeah, I accept everybody. I don't care what you do, do whatever. I accept everybody. You can have whatever, you can live whatever lifestyle you want, you can commit whatever sin you want, I accept everybody. Because that's what Jesus did. No, it's not what Jesus did. You see, Jesus was one of those who, who saw the blessed are those who mourn. He saw what sin was doing to these people. And he didn't just pretend like it's okay. He refused to leave them in their sin. He provided a way of rescue. It's not mercy to pretend like there's no sin or there's no problems and there's no consequences and effects. Our, our society has advanced to the point where we can no longer talk about certain things that the Bible says are sin, not so that we can judge them, but so that we can actually help people. You can't even talk about it anymore. And wounded people walk all around us. And we don't help. And we feel good about it because we think we're being merciful and we think we're being tolerant. Jesus' mercy, it's, it says, I want to help. And I, I want, it's not about, I'm going I'm to force you to be different. It's not, I'm going to judge you. But I want to help you. I want to help you understand. I want to help you heal. I want to help you be restored and fulfill the purpose for which you were created. You might want to walk around with all that bitterness. You might want to rock around with all that hatred and all that anger. I want to help you. That's mercy. And we have problems with that. We have problems because so many Christians, they don't get it. They, they, they either are not merciful at all and they're just judgmental all the time. They just want to tell everybody what's wrong with them. They just want to point out everybody's faults again and again and again and again. It's not merciful. And then you have the other people that just want to accept everybody and hey, let's just, let's just not even think about sin. Let's not think about problems. Let's just accept and love everybody. 
Jesus says, no. We need to love people. And we need to love them enough that we will show them mercy and we'll show them mercy by, by helping them. And it's hard. Because the hardest people to help in the world are people who don't think they need any help. People who know they need help, they're, they're pretty easy to help. They're just right there, help me, help me please. But people who think they got it all together or people who, who've carefully constructed a world, and we all do this to an extent, we all kind of you know, live a world where we try to create like something that helps us kind of get through some stability, some defense, and we create it. And sometimes it doesn't matter how harmful it is to us as long as it kind of protects some peace of mind and gives us some sense of identity. And once we get that, we don't want anybody touching it. It's kind of how my, my mom was with uh, stuff. Um, when we lived in Eva Beach, we had a pretty big house. It was like a six-bedroom house. And, um, and every time one of us moved out, it, that room got filled with stuff that my mom had. And if you asked my mom, she always had a reason for everything she had. There was always a reason. And she didn't want you touching her stuff, even though a lot of it was just junk. Um, she, you know, she used to do the preschool, and at the church, and you know, they would do crafts, and so she would save egg cartons. My mom would have a whole room full of egg cartons. I remember one time she made, you know, back when Big Macs came in styrofoam containers, and she found this craft where you could make like a little puppet out of the Big Mac container. You put eyes on it, you know, put little hair, things. We had a room full of Big Mac containers, right? She always had a reason. She had a system. Couldn't help her. When my wife and I, we had moved back, um, back to Hawaii, and we were going to live with, with my parents in this house, and we had our kids and everything. And it's like, how can we live here? <laughs> There's no space for human beings. And one of my other brothers, who's a lot, uh, he's a lot more blunt than I am, and he said, just clean it up. You know, don't get rid of anything precious like photographs and mementos, but just clean it up. And if she complains, I'll replace whatever she complains about. Oh, she complained. She was really upset. And we we're trying to help her. We we're trying to help her enjoy her house, have a better house. We're trying to help her because there's no way we could have lived there with her, and she loved, she loved her grandkids. She loved my wife. She, she loved my wife more than she loved me. She wanted us there. We tried to help, but she didn't think she needed help. She wasn't happy. And that's how a lot of us are. And it's hard. It's hard to help people who don't think they need help. But we're called to do it anyways. 
we're caught up in this, this world where we see we, we, so many things that where wrong has become right. And I'm not telling you it's easy. But we're called to be merciful. I, sh- I should never hear a Christian say this. I've heard, I've lived long enough to say whoever has become president, someone from the other you know, supporters, my friends who are supporters of the other person will say this, well, I'm going to move. I'm going to go to Canada. Or I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to you know, you know, Europe. Or I'm going to move. I'm going to leave the country. You know, that Obama's president or that Trump's president. I'm going to move. Right? Christians, we, we don't really have that option. We're called to stay. And we're called to show mercy. Even if it's dangerous. And even if people will hate us when all we're trying to do is bring God's love to them. Well, to get there, we have to overcome some attitudes because some people don't have problems with what I'm talking about because they don't really show mercy at all. In fact, when they talk about mercy and God's grace, they only talk about God's grace and mercy directed towards them. And their motto is, Mercy for me, justice for everyone else. Can't have that. It's mercy for all. And you see, the merciful, they get there because they, they realize the things that we saw in the first three verses. They realize how great and awesome God is and how not great and how not awesome they are. And they realize that, that the fact that God loves them is more grace and mercy than they could ever deserve. They realize they're objects of mercy. They realize that, that they, have, they have sinned against God. They have rebelled against God. They have ignored God. They have treated God like just an idea or just a far-off being. And they, they have treated things like his righteousness and his gifts as not important. They've done all of that. And yet God still extends to them mercy. And they realize that they are objects of this great, great mercy. And when you really get that, when you really understand that, you realize that there is nothing anyone else can do to you that doesn't deserve forgiveness. That no matter how much you're offended, it is like nothing compared to how much you offended God. And yet God still showed mercy to you. It doesn't matter what the story is. It doesn't matter if you tell me, but you don't really understand what this person did for me, did to me. You don't really understand how they hurt me. You don't understand how they betrayed me. Uh, I probably don't understand. But God does. And what we read in the gospel is Jesus does. Because there's Jesus. Jesus hanging on the cross. Why is he there? Well, he was doing his Father's will. He was loving his own people. 
He was proclaiming truth. But then, he had developed some followers, some of them who were so cowardly, they didn't want to hang around when things got tough, and one who betrayed him. He's hanging there because this this Roman government, drunk on power, has to extinguish the life of this person. That these, these religious leaders from the Jewish community who are, who are so troubled and so jealous of what Jesus has accomplished, they have to get rid of him. He's there. And in the midst of it, he's been beaten and he is, he is being mocked at the very moment that he says, Father, forgive them. If you're right now listening to me tell this story and it doesn't do something to you, you don't need to get your heart checked. But you need to get something checked. If you don't realize when you hold grudges against somebody that that when you see what Jesus is doing hanging on that cross, the, the object of scorn for the whole world, and he says, Father, forgive them, and you cannot forgive, and it doesn't break you inside. I don't know what to tell you. I really don't. I, I don't know how to tell you anything else than what I'm telling you. Or to be merciful. Or to be merciful. And you know the reason I will keep telling you these things? and I will keep looking at God's Word and preaching God's Word is because I'm merciful. And I hope you're the same way to me. I hope when you try to tell me something and I don't get it the first time that you don't go like, oh, pastor doesn't get it. No sense talking to that guy. I hope you're merciful. I hope you come back and try again. God, I hope you don't just give up. And I hope you not just do that for me, I hope you do that for each other. That if we don't go, well, no sense talking to that person, we know what they're going to say. Well, then don't talk. Do something else. Pray for them. Send them a letter. Do an act of kindness. Do something else. Then maybe you talk again. If we're going to be disciples, we need to hunger for righteousness. We need to be motivated by mercy. And finally, blessed are the pure in heart. What does that mean, pure in heart? For me, it means that There's no mixture of motivation. It's pure and it's selfless. It's not about being right. Because a lot of times that we think it's so important to be right on, don't really matter in the big scheme of things. But it's about making sure my motivation is right. 
The the path to that kind of arrogant self-righteousness usually begins by trying to do what's right. But we end up at the self-righteous rather than the righteous because our motives get mixed. And now it's suddenly about being right and thinking, I know better than everybody else. Everybody should listen to me because I know better. Maybe you know better because you think I'm the expert, or you know better because you believe you've studied it more, or you know better because you believe God chose you and gifted you to know that better. But we need to be motivated by these pure, selfless motives. It's it's what I have talked about each Sunday, and I think it's something that I'll just keep repeating. How do I know if my motives are pure? One test is this. It's just to ask yourself the question, is what I'm doing making me more like Jesus or less like Jesus or it doesn't really affect me one way or another? I think sometimes in, in the passion to want to do God's will and to want to do it with all that we are, we actually become less like Jesus. We become so bitter, we become so angry, we become so judgmental. We become so stuck in our ways as though Jesus had to wait until we came along so that he would know how to do things. No. No. The pure in heart. The pure in heart. It's those who are selfless, but they're not just selfless. Selflessness just leads you to just being nothing. But in place of selflessness, it's to be motivated by the things of God, the character of God. We no longer live according to this world. We no longer live just for our own survival and our own ego and our own you know, goals and objectives and those who, are that, those who are like us just to protect them. No. We, we want to be able to, to say that if God were to look at something that we do and let Him scrutinize it at every level, that he would eliminate anything in there that's an impurity. I used to think about this, this picture in my mind about what the judgment for Christians is like. We know what the judgment for non-Christians is like. The Bible talks about that. It's not pretty. But the judgment for Christians, this is what I think that it's like. And it's just a picture, so don't think you're going to find this in the Bible. But what I think that's like is like someday we're going to stand before God. And God is going to, you know, say, hello, how are you? It's good to see you. Don't worry, you're in, right? But we want to evaluate, want to judge. So he's going to say, okay, boys, 
or girls maybe, bring in their stuff. And for some of us, it might just be one person bringing in one thing, putting it on the ground. For others of us, it might be like big old dump trucks coming in and just pouring out all the, all the good things that we did in this world. It's all there. Some of us big stacks, some of us medium-sized, some really small ones. And then God's going to say, all right, light her up. So Pyro, one of the angels, is going to throw a match on that stack. And it's going to burn. And for some people, the dump trucks brought in all this stuff and it's going to burn down. And it's only going to be one little thing left. For other people, maybe they didn't have the big dump trucks, but when all is said and done, when everything's burned down, what's left is much bigger than that thing that the person with the big pile had. What's burning away? God says, I'm burning away everything that you did out of your selfish desires, out of your need for recognition, out of your desire for self-fulfillment. I only want to remain what is pure. That's all that remains. I don't know that that picture helps you It helps me. But you might go, well, aren't we still doing it for a reward? Aren't we still doing it for some kind of make God happy kind of a thing? Not really. Because this is what the picture is in the Bible that we read in Revelation. That that God is going to create a crown. And the crown is based on how we live our lives. And so if you take my picture, like he takes whatever's left and he makes a crown. And for some of you, he may be stretching this crown to make it fit around your head. And others of you, it's going to be this huge, you know, mangus crowd. But then, Jesus Christ enters the scene. And you know what we do? It doesn't matter whether our crown is huge. It doesn't matter whether it's barely fitting on our head. We take it off and we throw it at his feet. Because we realize he is all that matters. It's not about my righteousness. It's about his glory and his kingdom. And we get it. My challenge to myself and my challenge to you is get that now. Understand that now. Experience that now. Live that way now.